We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There used to be a little clip that would play before movies, uh, big movies in, in theaters uh, that I used to watch, like, like Star Wars. It was called the Deep Note Bumper for THX Sound. Perhaps you remember this sound. They stopped playing it a few years ago because most theaters have switched over now to, to Dolby, and so that THX sound isn't played very often. But for a long time, if you went to a big movie in the theaters, like a, like a Star Wars movie, you would see that same clip sort of as an introductory note in the service, or the, not the service, but the movie. The lights would go down in the theater, the screen goes black, and the words, the audience is listening, appear on the screen. And you can hear quiet, random notes moving around like a bunch of noise, and it's slowly getting louder. And as these notes get louder and louder, you can tell that they are beginning to move around a little bit. It sounds like it's just noise, but it sounds like maybe there's some order coming into it. As these notes get louder, it becomes more clear that these notes are not actually in harmony at all. It's discordant. It's unsettling, actually. It gives you a feeling of uh, unease as you hear it. At least that's what happens to me when I hear it. But as it continues to play and as the notes get louder and louder, you can tell that these notes are actually going somewhere. They're starting to move toward one another. It gets louder and louder until these notes join together and it ends with this intense, glorious, beautiful, stirring, harmonious chord. And it says THX on it, and it says the audience is listening, and it's bah. And if you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, this is what it looks like visually. This is a visual representation of the music. You can see how the notes in the first four measures are sort of bouncing around. They're weaving in and out from one another. And in the second set of four measures, you can see that it, that it comes together in some, some harmony. These individual notes coming together to make a harmony. This is not a perfect illustration, but this helped me to think through today's passage a little bit visually in two ways. First, as it relates to Scripture. First, as it relates to Scripture, following Genesis 3, God's redemptive history, as it's recorded for us in the Old Testament, sometimes feels like those first four measures. Just as you're reading it, that's just the way that it feels. There's the rising melody of those triumphant heroes like King David who defeats Goliath. But there's also the dark silence of the unstoppable, unspeakable depravity of the human heart like Israel during the time of the judges. And yet throughout, there is this constant note of God's endurance and encouragement given to us by his sure and steady promises. And all of those notes, all those countless victories, all those sorrows, all those steady drumbeats of God's promises finally meet together in history at the cross of Christ. 
And with that awareness, we can look back into that chaos and we can pick out all those individual notes that were anticipating the life and work of the God-man, our Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. So there truly actually is great harmony in the Old Testament when you're listening for the redemptive recurring theme of Christ. There's a second way that this kind of helped me this week. The unity of Scripture's hopeful message of Christ is meant to resonate with this community. So all of our, if we think of this image as, as it relates to us, all of us have our own unique individual pasts. We all have our own unique wanderings and all of our sorrows and our own victories and all of our struggles and our varying opinions, and it might sound like chaos. There are times when we are all whistling our own random tunes, but if we can borrow again from this illustration, what happens is when we are born again from above, when we are converted, when God's Spirit brings us to life by His Word, we find our life's truest purpose and meaning in glorifying God in Christ. And so we change our tune, as it were. And we join in the chorus of others who are doing the same. And over time, our voices start to blend together so that we, with one voice, are glorifying God and the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. But it's not easy. Otherwise, Paul would not have had to written this passage. We still want to whistle our own tunes. And sometimes we lose track of where we're at in the sheet music. Our passage this morning points us back to our conductor, who is Christ Jesus himself, so that we might be able to find our place in the music again. The big idea for this morning's sermon is this. Scripture's melodic line of Christ's humility creates harmony in his people. Scripture's melodic line of Christ's humility creates harmony in his people. And so we've got two main points here that we'll work through. First, the strong must bear the weakness of the weak, like Jesus. See it in verses 1 through 3. Second, God glorifies himself in Christ by giving his people endurance and encouragement through Scripture. That'll be the second set of three verses from 4 through 6. Let's pray before we get into it. Father, I am so encouraged by hearing the voices of these saints who have gathered into this same room to sing of your glories, to put our minds together to focus on your cross. And even as we just sang moments ago, we pray right now that you would speak to us, that your church would be built up in so doing by your Spirit. so that your truth would prevail over unbelief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, the strong must bear the weakness of the weak like Jesus. This is the first point we see in verses 1 through 3. And I've got each of these two points broken down to three subpoints: an A, B, and a C. So we'll take these essentially one verse at a time. A... We see here an obligation in verse 1. There's an obligation that the strong should bear the weakness of the weak. Where he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This, of course, is following what we have read in previous weeks 
chapter 14 of Romans. And so the words strong and weak, as he is using them here, have very specific meanings. This relates to those disputable matters that he talked about at the beginning of chapter 14 of Romans. Some Christians in Rome, probably those who had come to Christianity as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, they were convinced that they needed to continue to observe those ceremonial restrictions that had marked them off for centuries as God's people. So they thought that they should not eat meat if they didn't know where that meat was coming from, and they thought that they should continue to observe those Jewish festival feast days and the Sabbath. They were convinced theologically that they would offend God if they stopped doing those things or engaged in doing those things, and Paul tells us that they were wrong. He says they're wrong. He makes that clear that based on Jesus' teaching, they are not bound in that way in reality. Christians are not obligated to eat kosher foods or to observe Jewish feast days, but their faith did not allow them to believe that. And so he calls them the weak in faith. The strong in faith were the ones who were, like Paul, realized that they were free to eat meat and they weren't obligated to observe those restrictions in terms of the days, the holidays. So their faith allowed them to have some more freedom. And those differences of opinion between the strong and the weak, as you might imagine, were opportunities for some quarrels within the church. And so Paul is encouraging both of these groups, those who are the stronger in faith, those who are the weaker in faith, to stop despising and judging one another. But he leans into the strong a little bit harder in the passage we looked at last week. He says the strong should be careful not to cause their weaker brothers to stumble in the faith by doing something that would grieve their brother or sister. And there's very serious implications of causing someone to stumble that we saw last Sunday. So he says the strong should lay aside their freedom of conscience to do certain things based on their theological convictions in order to pursue something better, which is the good of the weaker brother. So he summarizes that, that argument of chapter 14. He summarizes it here, actually just in one verse. The strong have an obligation to bear with the failings or the weaknesses of the weak. And to bear, we can use that in different ways in English, and sometimes it just means you have to sort of grin and, and bear it. But it's more than that. It's more than simply to tolerate or to put up with. It's to bear the weight of it. Just think of it that way. The strong have an obligation to bear the weight of the weaknesses of the weak. It's to assume that burden of the weak believers as it was their own. Their obligation is not to please themselves, the strong. That is not what they're obliged to do. Actually, what they're obliged to do is to please their neighbor and build them up. And we can see that in verse 2. B, this is the instruction don't please yourself, please your neighbor to build him up. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So based on the obligation that we just saw that we have for the strong in particular to bear with the sufferings of the shortcomings, the failures, the weaknesses of the weak, he instructs them to seek the good of the neighbor, to build up the neighbor. Did you notice here that he switched uh, previously, he's been talking about these groups in terms of brothers. 
But now he, he brings in the word neighbor in this particular instance. It's not coincidental, I'm sure. It's an allusion to the Old Testament law, where God's people were told to love their neighbors as themselves. In fact, he's just explained this not that long ago, how Christians fulfill that law by loving their neighbors. This is Romans 13, verses 9 through 10. It says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so this, this obligation for the strong to bear the weaknesses of the weak is based on, first, the, the Ten Commandments, that's where Paul goes back to, but beyond that, it's actually based in Jesus' own teaching. We know that Jesus established the importance of this moral law for his followers as well. Jesus himself says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, tells a parable about it. It is not loving, obviously, to potentially cause the weak to stumble in their faith by insisting on exercising your own Christian liberty because you have the right to do it and causing someone else serious grief in so doing. So the strong are supposed to be more concerned with how to love their neighbors than how to enjoy their freedom of conscience. There's a horizontal responsibility that we bear towards one another as Christians. He's helping them reprioritize what they should be seeing as most important. But notice where Paul goes next to further strengthen that argument in verse 3. See, here's the reason. Christ selflessly bore the weaknesses of the weak. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So he grounds all of this instruction for Christ did not please himself. So not only is it the teaching of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself, it is actually the example of Christ to love your neighbor as yourself. Christ, of course, loved his neighbor, his people, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ assumed our burden as his own. Let's think about that Old Testament quote that Paul uses here just for a moment. We're going to talk about this in depth a little bit more in a moment, but for now, let's just understand how Paul is using it here in the flow of Romans. First, it's helpful to clarify the pronouns here. Who is Paul speaking of here? Who is it that is he has in mind as quoting here? This would be Jesus speaking to God the Father. So we can read it in this way. The reproaches of those who approached you... God the Father, fell on me, who is Jesus. Okay, hold on to that. Second, we need to clarify what reproach means, because I doubt any of you guys used the word reproach in this past week. <laughs> it's not a common word. It means insults. It means taunts. So at the crucifixion, the anger, the hatred that people felt toward God the Father fell on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus, of course, was innocent. There was no earthly reason for him to be crucified, aside from the depraved anger and wrath of mankind. At the cross, the holy and righteous king of all of creation was mocked. He was ridiculed on the cross. All the piercing notes, all those discordant notes that we see in the Old Testament 
have focused themselves now upon the one who deserved it the least. All of that hatred, all of that anger, they mocked his authority. So they gave him a robe in order to taunt him. They gave him a reed, a stick, as a fake scepter to mock his authority as king. And finally, they gave him a crown of thorns, which is that final symbol of reproach that they would lay upon his head to mock him as a king. The irony, of course, is that at any moment, Jesus could have said one word and ended all of that suffering. But he didn't speak a word. Why didn't Jesus speak a word? Why didn't he bring an end to all of that suffering? Why did he remain meek and humble even as he faced the suffering? John Chrysostom, an early church father from the fourth century, brings it home for us, I think, in this quote. He had power not to have been reproached, power not to have suffered what he did suffer, had he been minded to look on his own things, But yet he was not so minded. But through looking to our good, he neglected his own. Jesus refrained from exercising the authority, the rights that he had, his status. He refrained from exercising that for the good of his people. So we're beginning to see the analogy here of why Paul would introduce this psalm, this thought here. Although Christ had freedom, he did not hold on to it, but he refrained from using it out of love for others. This is Philippians 2, 5 through 11 as well. Now our quibbles and our quarrels seem to take on their true size in relation to this, don't they? Christ willingly drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf so that you would not have to. Do you really need to insist on eating that meat even if it could lead to the destruction of your brother? Can you not pass by the meat? Do you really need to despise and condemn one another over whether you're observing certain feast days? Is this really the most important thing that's happening here? Do you really want to insist on these things? Are you going to let those minor ways in which you differ from one another derail the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace that Christ is creating within his people in the church. Let's remember that this instruction, of course, is couched within the gospel. Paul is very much reminding us what God has done for us in Christ first and foremost. After all, consider what Christ has done for you. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this is the humbling corrective to the pride that so often fuels quarrels and dissensions within the people of God. Rightly understanding ourselves in light of the cross. It's so interesting to note that Paul cites the Old Testament to encourage and remind these believers of what Christ did for them. This was not that long ago. He could have just pointed back in history. Why did he point to the Old Testament? 
Let's keep reading. Second, God glorifies himself in Christ's united people by communicating his endurance and encouragement through Scripture. This is verses 4 through 6 now. Now, as I said, this is not that long after Christ had lived, died, resurrected, ascended. They would have been able to remember this. There would have been eyewitnesses who were still alive. Why does Paul point to the Old Testament? Why does he base his argument there? It seems like it's an extra step. It seems like it would be just a cleaner argument just to point to straight what Christ had done so recently. But Paul is calling attention to an idea here that has already, we've noticed, influenced this later to to a great degree. Uh, Paul is very much basing his argument on the authority of the Old Testament. And he's going to continue to do so, particularly if you have your book uh, of Romans 15 in front of you there, you'll note like right after this, he's going to have just a litany of Old Testament scriptures. He's about to string together a whole bunch of them to establish the unity of God's people. And so in this verse, in verse 4, it almost seems like he's taking a diversion for a moment. He says, this is the principle that I'm going to be using. I've already been using it, but I'm about to use it. And this verse, he's explaining what it is that he's doing with that Old Testament scripture. A, the principle he's showing us. All scripture gives us hope. Verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. The verse that he's just used here in verse 3 is from Psalm 69, as we've already alluded to briefly. Verse 9. Psalm 69, verse 9. Now, original context, Psalm 69 was written by King David. It was written about a thousand years before Jesus was ever born. And in this Psalm 69, it's talking about David, who was zealous for God's glory. David was devoted to God's glory. And because of that, people made fun of him. People reproached him. They insulted him. They taunted him. They mocked him. And so this is what the verse says, Psalm 69, verse 9, in its entirety, says this, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. And so we can see here that it was David's zeal for God's house that caused others to reproach him or to insult him. We can see this playing out in the the fullness of Psalm 69. David cared deeply about what God cared deeply about. And he was mocked for it. So that's the original context of Psalm 69. But on this side of the cross, what Paul is doing here is a little different than what David might have had uniquely in mind. I think David spoke better than he knew. Paul looks back at that psalm and he recognizes that there's there's actually something else that is being spoken of here rightly in this psalm. The psalm is speaking of Christ. Certainly it's about David historically about David and his suffering for his devotion to God, but there's more to it because David is a type of Christ. David, as a type of Christ, points to something bigger and better. Jesus, of course, is that ultimate righteous sufferer who was mistreated, an understatement, for his devotion to God. And so Paul reads this psalm from the Old Testament through that lens, picking up the messianic themes, that melodic line, noticing it in the book of Psalms, and he says, well, this is actually about Jesus. And he's not the only one to do this. Hopefully you know this. The New Testament consistently turns to the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, 
to point us to Christ, to help us to find Christ there within the book of Psalms. Psalm 110 is the most often cited psalm in the New Testament. It comes up over and over again in the New Testament, and it is consistently applied to Jesus. Even Jesus himself applies Psalm 110 to himself. There's good reason to think that the book of Hebrews is all one long sermon on how Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 are really pointing to Jesus. This is one of the main ideas of the whole book of Hebrews. Jesus used the language of the Psalms to express his own anguish, as we'll hear about as Passion Week approaches from Psalm 22. And of course, Jesus' final words from the cross were from Psalm 31. The Apostle Peter at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, points to Psalm 16 as speaking of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's more we could say here, but I hope this point is clear. The Old Testament was written for our instruction to give us endurance and encouragement in Christ. The one who humbled himself to death and now is risen and reigning and ascended stirs wonder and love and encouragement and endurance by his word through his spirit. Through directing us to his word. Please, friends, do not let anyone convince you that the Old Testament is not for Christians. We need the Old Testament. That's why he gave it to us. That is certainly not the way the New Testament understands the Old Testament. Paul could have pointed directly to the resurrection as the Christian's hope. He could have said, "Just you remember what happened. He rose from the dead. He did not do that. Paul points to Scripture because he knows that knowing that he was raised from the dead is not enough. We needed to know what is God's interpretation of that event? What did that mean? And we need God to tell us what that means. And we find that, we find his divine interpretation of the resurrection in his word. This is what he's telling us what happened. This is where our hope is found. And we hear God's divine interpretation of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and that melodic line that comes up throughout the Old Testament from beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. All of it is given to us by God through his Holy Spirit for our endurance and our encouragement. And once we see that, once we see that Scripture has one consistent theme, we then begin to resonate with that theme. And we then begin to share that same mind that we find in Scripture. We begin to have that same love. And that is how we end up being in full accord and having one mind in harmony. So we see, and we're looking back at the Psalms, we see, yes, David had zeal for God's house. But we also know that David couldn't build God's house, could he? Jesus has zeals for God's house. And Jesus is building his house even now, right now, in this moment. This is what's happening. He is building his people by his spirit through his word. He is zealously promoting the unity of his church. God's house is his body. God's body, humanly speaking, is his church. And it was for us that he was willing to undergo humiliation. If that zeal that, that propelled Christ's obedience consumed us, 
then we too would rightly value the righteousness and the peace and the joy and we would be in full accord with Jesus Christ because that's where he's at. That's where we should be heading. If that zeal consumes you, you would be more willing to care for your weaker brothers by laying down your own preferences. Every line of Scripture was written for us and our instruction. All of Scripture speaks with one voice of the Messiah's suffering and glory. And that encourages us and it helps us to endure. It nourishes our hope to recognize that melodic line throughout the whole of Scripture. Our hope is whatever it is that we set our minds on. Our hope is whatever it is that we set our minds on. And when we're setting our minds on Christ, each of us, from our own backgrounds, we come together and those chords unite into a chord. And we are, by definition, in harmony with one another. It's through Scripture that God imparts us the endurance and encouragement that belong to Him. The endurance and encouragement don't necessarily come from Scripture ultimately. That is the instrument by which we get them, but they actually come from God Himself. And we see this in the next verse. Notice in verse 5b this blessing, a prayer blessing that Paul writes over the church in Rome. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Now, Paul reminds us that the endurance and the encouragement or the patience and comfort, maybe just two different words that we could plug in there that I think represent the idea well as well, that finds its source not in Scripture, not in words, not in history, but ultimately in God himself. It is no coincidence that endurance and encouragement that we find in Scripture is attributed to God himself in verse 5. Do you notice the repetition of those two words? Endurance, encouragement from Scripture. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you these things. What does it mean that God is a God of endurance? We might also call endurance patience. Patience. That might help us a little bit more. God's patience is seen alongside his goodness and his mercy How does he show his patience? Well, God gives his people space for repentance. That is his patience because he desires reconciliation with them. God is patient towards his creatures in and through Christ. This is what we read about in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that divine forbearance. Speaking of God's patience, with the goal of reconciliation and restoration of his people. It is his divine forbearance to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in and through the life and ministry of Christ. There's a 17th century theologian named Edward Lee who defines God's patience this way. He says this, It is that attribute whereby he bears the reproach of sinners and defers their punishments. I'm going to say that again. I love it. God's patience is that attribute whereby he bears the reproach of sinners and defers their punishments. Is that not the cross of Christ? Isn't that exactly what we read here actually in this passage too? That God in Christ is bearing the reproach of sinners, deferring punishment. 
But God is not only the God of endurance, patience, he is also a God of encouragement. A God of encouragement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul uses this exact same word that he uses here in Romans to describe God, and there the ESV translates it as the God of comfort. He is the God of comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Encouragement, comfort. His encouragement is a comfort to us. Within the Anglican tradition, there are four passages that are regularly used together in worship services. Uh, Thomas Cranmer came up with this in his Book of Common Worship almost 500 years ago. And these four passages of Scripture he called the comfortable words. Comfortable words. I'm just going to read these, these four passages, and maybe you can tell me afterwards why you think that these four passages would be called comforting words. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We know God to be a God of comfort. How? Well, friends, it's certainly by our experiences. We've known the comfort that comes by his Holy Spirit. But we know him because he's revealed himself to us through his word. Jesus Christ himself being that word incarnate. What's all this pointing to? The obligation, the instruction, the reason, the principle all lead to this, this blessing, this prayer wish from Paul for these Christians in Rome that the unity with which Scripture glorifies God in Christ might unify Christ's church. And all of that leads us to the glory of God. No surprise. C, the goal so that we vocally glorify God in unison. Verse 6. Finishing that sentence, he says, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of all and everything is the glory of God. And it's fitting now as we're starting to begin to wind down in the book of Romans. We're moving into this final section 
that that first distinctive sin that characterizes the unregenerate human that we read about in chapter 1, our failure to glorify God, is being reversed in Christ and through his church. So how do we do this? How do we glorify God with one voice? The most straightforward way, of course, is through our song. We sing together in unison. Uh, We also regularly here on Sunday mornings recite biblical truths together in gathered worship. There's one more spot that sometimes is overlooked when it comes to the unity of our voices in worship services, and that's in our response to prayer. When someone leads us in prayer together, as Andy did, as Elliot has, we're meant to be listening to it, tracking with it, allowing it to resonate in us so that when it's over, we can heartily and verbally with one voice say together, amen. Amen doesn't mean that's the end of the prayer. I know sometimes it's the way we think of it. It's like end of transmission, over and out. But amen actually means truth. It's true. What, what he just prayed, I'm, I'm on board with. And so when we say together amen, that is us verbally recognizing that our minds and hearts are in unity around our aspirations that are in line with Christ's goals, which are the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right now. (laughs) Divisions in the church over disputable matters diverts time and energy from its basic mission, which is the proclamation of the gospel and the glorifying of God. Those dissensions, those suspicions which are caused by pride and hubris and arrogance, all that quarreling, all of that hinders our ability to rightly glorify God. And we see the exact opposite in the example of Christ, whose glorifying God was the unifying goal of his life. God does not get as much glory from a divisive, wrangling people. So how do we pursue unity together? Well, this passage actually gives us two very clear applications that I'll simply point us to. The passage tells us first to draw near to God in Scripture. We see that in verse 4. We hear the Holy Spirit glorifying God in Christ in unison throughout Scripture. We see that. We recognize it. We affirm it together. Second, we're told to draw near to God in prayer. And so just as that Holy Spirit is at work in us, that same Spirit who was at work in the inscripturation of the Bible is working in us, we too are uniting our voices to glorify God in Christ, just as Scripture does with one voice. We see that in verse 5. And as we do this, as we turn to Scripture by the Holy Spirit and we come together in prayer, we draw near to God, those tunes that each of us are whistling, maybe that the world trains us to, to whistle throughout the week, come together and uh, they start to sound similar to each other. It almost sounds like we're singing the same song together. The whistling sounds strangely familiar. That's what we're aiming at. The tune we want to sing is the glory of God in Christ. 
the unity of our speech, what happens with our mouths, flows from the unity of our hearts, which comes from the unity of our thoughts, which all stem from our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, so that together we may with one voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.